0: I'm tired today, and I've been tired recently, I've been tired in the last year, and uh, I think it's sometimes important for me to be honest about that and honest where I'm at. This sermon kind of came together last minute. I want you to know that I express some tiredness in it, and it comes from love, I think. I love this community. Um, I love that we're here. I miss the lots more people that we normally have. I miss hugging each other. Um, I miss it being fall and not so hot also. But I miss miss those things, and I do believe that we're moving towards that, and that's exciting. So that is something to be encouraged about. But we're still on the way, and things can still be kind of tiring. Let me open with a word of prayer in in that vein. God of comfort, creator God, who holds us, who mothers us, Who draws us near who calls us good and calls us holy not because of what we are but because of your love for us God we ask that you be with us this morning that your spirit find our hearts yielded as as Mennonites say ready to hear from you that it would be a healing time a refreshing time It would be whatever we need for wholeness. And now, and that would all be by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as much as I would like to have been, I am not much of a world traveler. I don't think my mom who raised me ever went anywhere. I mean, we went to Canada. We grew up on the Canadian-American border, but Canada is not really an adventure. We would go over there for Chinese food. My mom goes to Canada now because there's a play festival. Uh, but it really is like another state. Sorry, those of you that are Canadian, I don't mean to offend you by saying that, but it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's different. There's French signs, uh, but it's largely the same. My first and only time overseas, my only time that I've ever gone overseas, I think that's different than a lot of you, maybe not, but my only time ever was I was lucky enough for my last class in college, it was a shortened semester A month and a half, I got to do an intercultural studies trip to Morocco. It's wonderful. That felt like an adventure. The markets, the old medinas, the Berber villages, the ornate mosques, the calls to prayer, uh, it did leave an impression on me. Uh, One of the lesser things that we saw when we were in Morocco uh, was on a, a side trip that we made to the ruins of an old Roman settlement named Volubilis. I don't know if you knew that the Roman Empire made it all the way over to Morocco, but they did. And this is a picture of, those, of some of those ruins. It was settled by the Romans in the first and second century. This site that you see now is not inhabited. It is remote and it is deserted. But among what remains there are parts of pillars, roadways, a triumphal arch, And even some mosaics from the floor of some rich person's bedroom or whatever, rich people could afford mosaics. This is not most people's houses. It's actually kind of amazing how they they, uh, preserve from the first, second century. But these all now are just interesting things to see. These are not a thriving community. It's not a thriving empire. They're just relics of the past. The memory of a fallen Uh, political reality of a fallen community, fallen empire. In 1818, at 26, four years actually before his own death, the English poet Percy Shelley published a poem that many of you may have heard, it was uh, quoted in Breaking Bad, Uh, so that might be one place you heard it, called Ozymandias. Coincidentally, this is the same year that his wife, Mary Shelley, published Frankenstein. Ozymandias is the Greek name for the the Egyptian pharaoh, that great Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses II. Apparently in 1817, so a year before this poem was published, uh, the British Museum had put on display a recently acquired artifact from Egypt, the bust of Ramses II, which you can see up here. This was a big deal in London. People were super interested in this. They would come from all over to see it, it made all the press, and it said something about Britain's global power, and this was a show of power. They brought the world to them. But Shelley appreciated it for a different reason. The all too poetic situation that he saw of this remnant of a decayed empire on display in the heart of the inevitably waning and decaying British Empire. Did they not see the weird juxtaposition that was happening? And so he wrote a poem. I'll read it off the slides here. This poem, Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land, who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias. King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch away. As I read the passage from Second Samuel today, and as I thought about it, I have no inside information about David's motivation to build the temple certainly he says his desire is to build a house for god and we can take him probably on his face there but david could not have been unaware of the social and political honor that building such a great building would bring him to great dynasties don't have only one god who hangs out in a tent outside of town who lives in a van down by the river. No, they have gods in giant houses of marble and cedar. Surely Ozymandias built awe-inspiring temples. I think it's tempting for modern people to look back and say, see, God didn't want a temple because as we know, those primitive people didn't understand that God is spirit. I'm I hope you hear my my sarcasm voice, right? Okay. This is not me. This is somebody who's very unenlightened, and I just gave myself away as saying somebody's on the line. Okay, never mind. But God does not need a temple or sacrifices. I'll continue with my sarcasm voice. We don't need all those physical trappings. But David knew that. The prophets knew that. The people of Israel knew that about God. The God who showed up and delivered them from Egypt did not need a temple then. He led them through the wilderness, nor was he holed up inside a building in the wilderness, but he did come in a tent. And they know that God does not need sacrifices, but that doesn't mean that those sacrifices were not meaningful, that a place To come together is not meaningful. God shows up, and God showed up in the world around them, the Israelites, as God willed. And they knew that. In a pillar of fire, in a gentle breeze, in a burning bush, and also in locations like the wilderness tent. Not because that tent makes God stay there, and they've grasped him. Um, but because God has graciously agreed to visit. In a temple, and even in flesh, it's often easy for us to, to speak about the temple in, with a certain kind of unrealized anti-Semitism, like we're better than them, we don't need a temple. But there was something meaningful about that place of meeting. God does not need those places, and we know that and the ancient Israelites knew that, and David knew that. God does not need those places and moments of encounter, but what God understands is that sometimes we do. Places where we come together to encounter God, places where God will meet us. The temple was not a place to make God a home or to reduce the incomprehensible God, to confine her and grab hold of her. No, it was a place of encounter chosen by God. It was a place that God graciously called sacred, No, what God seems to object to in this passage, which is really interesting to me, at least here at first glance, it is not about not having a place to reside, because he says, I have one of those. God said he's already staying in the old tent outside of town. God says he never asked instead for a house made of cedar out of luxury. And we know that that does get built, but she's quite happy right now in the tent. Thank you very much. Indeed, the tabernacle defines who God is. The God that brings Israel up out of slavery in Egypt, who wanders with the people in the desert. This is God's character. This is how we understand who God is. However, it is not any sort of monument that would make Ozymandias look and despair, as Shelley put it. Though the lectionary for this week put our passages together this morning, this passage from Ephesians, this passage from 2 Samuel, I can't help but wondering if Paul had this scene in 2 Samuel himself in his mind when he was putting together the letter to the Ephesians. There's so much in this passage. Reconciliation, Jesus is our peace, access to God through Jesus by the one Spirit, that Trinitarian formula, I'd love to unpack that a little bit, Where do I start? Well, not really with those things. Perhaps I'll have an upcoming series on this one passage. you four weeks on this passage. Today, what I noticed is that Paul focuses on this metaphor of the temple. No longer is the temple made out of cedar, but it is made out of people but it is real, and it is among us. This temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul says, who spread the message of what Paul calls the mystery of Christ. And at its base is the, cor- is the cornerstone, the Christ, the executed king of an upside-down kingdom, Jesus. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone of the building is the stone by which Every other stone is measured and placed. The cornerstone sets the pattern for the whole building itself. The cornerstone holds all things together, shapes what those things are. But this cornerstone is not very promising if we hope that this temple will meet Ozymandias' criterion uh, of fear and awe. And where the church has met with Ozymandias' as criterion of fear and all, and I say this in all seriousness, it has been the farthest from Christ. But the very foundation of this temple, as we see in Ephesians, its source is rather bloody and defeated. There's a cross. And for Paul, this is where the mystery lies. The power here is not what Ozymandias would recognize, but there is a power so often, Mennonites especially, we want to say we forsake power, but it is a different power that Jesus has on display. It is not Ozymandias' power, but it is Jesus' power. It is the power of God manifests not in retribution, but in mercy, not in judgment, but in spirit, not in triumph of death over life, but of life exposing the powers of death. God's temple is a monument, not to Ozymandias, but to Jesus' power, to Yahweh power. And Paul is clear, to spirit power. And I promise you have not stumbled into a Pentecostal church this morning. But the spirit is essential to this passage. This temple of God is not made of marble and gold and cedar, but it is built on the blood and mercy of Jesus in the lives of the apostles and is further cobbled together with stones of disparate origins. Many misshapen, oblong, difficult fits, that is, all of us. And Paul tells us God's spirit chooses to dwell in that temple. And then Paul says a few things I think are harder for us sometimes. God calls this temple holy are ex-evangelical. That's the the cool word these days, right? That's what they're saying on Twitter. Sorry, I'm trying to be as as middle-aged as possible. We kind of revolt sometimes to this notion of holy because it sounds like holier than thou. It sounds like something that we have, a property that makes us better than other people. And I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here, or at least that's not how I'm going to read it. So whatever Paul had in mind. God calls this temple holy, God speaks of transformation and a new people. God similarly called Israel to be holy. Really, this whole passage is about how we Gentiles, those of us that are Gentiles, are able to come alongside Israel because of Jesus, that we too may be called, that we might be a people together, not by our own making, but by God's. God called Israel holy, not because they were better than others, that was clearly on display, the in the old testament but simply because god had set them apart because god had loved them and because god loves us that particularity can be hard too doesn't god love everyone yeah god loves us as well and god loved israel but god set them apart to be something for the world for the world not apart from the world not in, just in distinction from the world, but for the world. And we too, with our ramshackle house that is not that impressive sometimes, with our Zoom failures and whatever other errors that will happen in the rest of this service, we too in our ramshackle house are called to be something for the world, though not in the style of Ozymandias not simply to do things. We're really good at doing things. We focus on the doing. Nor God forbid to think that we are better than, holier than, or any act of hubris that focuses on ourself. No, God has not set us apart from this world, but God calls us to be this anti-Ozymandias temple for the world. Not simply by doing, but by being. And maybe that's a, a tough one, but Paul seems to think this comes from at least four things in this passage. And I'm gonna say them quickly. And I'm gonna move on. One, we become this temple by the work of the spirit, by the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the traditions that we've been handed down. Us individualists don't like traditions, but it's true. That's what we understand, what comes before us and who we are. Three, by the work and union with Jesus. And four, and this is maybe my point that I'll get to you for by the community, the community that works in concert with those other three things, built on the foundation of those three things, the people we do this together with. Paul really believes this. Paul really believes this. Do you believe this? There's a lot that's hard to swallow in here as I read this, and I wanted to say a lot of it, but maybe that's one thing to ask. Do you believe this is okay if you don't? Paul does. Why are you here this morning? Those of you that are here, those of you that are on Zoom, we're all here for a variety of reasons. I originally, had one version had like 30 different reasons that people are here for, I promise I cut that all down. But we're all here for a variety of reasons and none of them is wrong. And our process of transformation, however slow and however doesn't fit other people's expectation, is not wrong either, that is God's doing. Uh, but we're all here for a variety of reasons, and they bring us here differently. And God works them together as we come together. I do think there is something important about the act of gathering, though, and being in community, and coming as a community, being as a community. This is probably no surprise. We talk about community a lot, and I think community itself might be the reason that a lot of us are here. That's the primary one, maybe more than Jesus. Like Jesus. We have this lingering hold on of Jesus, but we need the people. We need the community. There's nothing wrong with that. But I also want us to be careful not to idolize community itself. As though community itself will save us. As long as we're together and we work it all out, we're going to be better. Maybe that's right, like on a very kind of humanist standpoint. That's right. But that's not what Paul is getting at. Paul calls us to be a very specific kind of community. And not a community that is simply powered by us. And I think that's the point that Paul wants to make. None of this is by us. If you want to boast, none of this work is anything that you are doing. But we partner in it. So we, we, Mennonites especially, have this tension. What do we do with that? We are called to be and do. But it is by, Paul says here, by the work of God. Right? It is not powered by us, but we are called to be a community of the Spirit built on that strong foundation with Jesus at its center. And for some of us, I know it is the community that holds us here, especially um, after perhaps, as I mentioned already, and here we come to that traumatic year or perhaps disillusioning experiences with past churches. We need this community. And that's what holds us here. And that's okay. I'm speaking very personally now. I think that perhaps my, maybe some of you are different, I think my reason for being here might be slightly different, but worth emphasizing. I certainly was drawn, of course, by the peace tradition, is why I ended up in this church, by reading the sermon. I always say I'm radicalized by Jesus, reading the Sermon on the Mount. That's why I'm here. But at my depth, I don't know that I like community very much, and I think that might be a little bit different. I know that that's a thing that we say. I don't know that I'm supposed to say that, what I said. But let me say it again. That was really freeing. I don't know that I like community very much. But I think that, we, that Jesus calls us to be part of community. And so me, it's, it's a discipline. I'm going to be a hard one. I'm here on really sappy terms. I, I've gone through my moments of doubt. I think doubt is, is important for us to embrace it and talk about it. That's not where I'm at right now. I'm good with Jesus. I love Jesus. I'll be real sappy about it. Jesus loves me this I know, right? And I, I know it's deeper than that. It's not this kind of emotional, it's not just this emotional sappy thing, but I want to follow Jesus. And because of things Paul says here and because of things Jesus says elsewhere, I think that I'm supposed to follow Jesus with other people, right? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to say I don't like community as a pastor too? Does that make me, was that like extra? Is that extra like, I think crowns are being popped or stars are being popped off my crown in heaven. It's okay. But I think Jesus calls me to be here, so I'm I'm learning to love it or I am committed to working with it. But I think what I will say next I hope makes it clear that I'm just not a misanthrope. I don't hate people. There are reasons for my feelings. I always try to say it's very important with kids to validate their feelings. There's always something behind it and try to figure it out. So maybe I can shift the metaphor a little bit from church as temple to church as sheep. Look at those cute sheep, that's us. We have, we are sheeple, that's right. Oh, thank you, Bert, that was great. We have actually had a lot of really good preaching on sheep in the last past year. I can think of Bert's sermon Sarah gave a really wonderful one where we learned all about sheep. And they did such a great job exegeting the passage, making clear what was there. And since they did such a good job, I hope that you'll forgive me for taking a passage completely out of context, just for this morning. In summer camp, way back when I worked at summer camp, I was a summer camp counselor. I was a program director at a summer camp. Maybe, maybe you're all like, yeah, that seems right, Tim. That's exactly what you would be. We used to sing a song called I Just Want to Be a Sheep. Has anybody heard that song? It, something like that, I think. I can't actually hear you because of the mask, but I believe you were right. There's actually some anti-Semitic stuff in there, too, about Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, I'm not going to sing the whole thing, and I would recommend maybe we retire it. But, I'll, but it goes something like, I just want to be a sheep. Ba-ba. I just want to be a sheep. Ba-ba. Okay, I'll stop there. We don't need any more from me it goes like that. And you know what, this pandemic, I've been singing that in my head. I know that I have been called to be a a pastor. And and I know that the Greek word for pastor is shepherd. But I just want to be a sheep sometimes. But you know, the official title for all of us pastors, by the way, is actually minister, which means servant has nothing to do with pastor. And we do believe in the priesthood of all believers. So we're all shepherds and sheep at the same time. So balls in your court. But this year has been difficult and draining. I know that you a lot of feel a lot of you feel that for all of us. For some of us more than others. For some of us, we have experienced very severe things, illnesses, but we've all experienced a certain amount of isolation. There have been traumas. Our family had a near death experience that I can't get out of my mind. And it was scary. I still hold on to that. On top of everything else, that was that was tough. It is tough. For some of us, it helps our ramshackle temple come together, that we rely on each other. Man, it's hard in a pandemic when we're so separated. We can't even see each other, really, on Sundays. I mean, what is this, the fourth one that we've done in person? Maybe the fifth one. So for some of us, maybe it helps the temple come together. But for others, it has tested its construction. There are many important bricks that were with us a year ago that are no longer with us. Many important sheep that we no longer see. I always feel the need to mention at least once a year in a sermon, it's probably, you'll probably, those of you that aren't here, which is funny to say because you don't hear me, will probably appreciate that I say this uh, at a very low occupancy sermon. But it's always important to remember, I am not a full-time pastor. Did you know that? It's always good to, have those that expectation neither is Mary Ann. our family gets by on multiple part-time jobs and my part-time jobs three of them all demand more than the hours that I I give them this pandemic I have had to work full-time part-time jobs that demand more than full-time and having much less time to do it Mary and I have been kind of breaking up the days so one of us can do work, one of us can watch the kids. you're trying to do, Marianne lets me have three days in her two, And so I feel like I should apologize for that or something, but uh, very gracious, probably about like 25 hours of work week to do that. I'm gonna move on so it doesn't sound like I'm complaining. This is all part of all of this though. But I mean, obviously with kids at home and school this year, it was tough. And we all have those experiences. We all know those things. Some of us more than others. But man, I just want to be a, I just want to be a sheep. And I, maybe I'll say that more, what, what that means in a second. But after all, the Lord is my shepherd. That's what Psalm 23 says. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. I want to say that Paul talks about shepherds in the community in Ephesians. I'm just going to pick my, those two passages that I like. But the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And I want to find some way to trust in that and lean on that and let go of some of this anxiety that's developed in the last year. But really, again, introvert that I am, you may not know this, but I am definitely an introvert. It is the being shepherded in community itself that can be draining. And so I look at that parable, and this is where I'll take something completely out of context. What's, what's that parable about the sheep? The parable of the sheep that gets to go off and spend some time by itself before the shepherd finally wrangles it back and makes it build community. Isn't that one? I just, sometimes I hear that parable, and I just think of that sheep off by itself, and I think, good on you, sheep. You go get that alone time. That's great. As we live as this flock, as we reside as this cobbled together temple, part of our task is to be aware of one another and aware of ourselves and aware of these different dynamics and what people are going through. What are the hidden things that others carry that we're not considering? What is our own trauma and baggage that we bring to the table, sometimes that we project on our community that we haven't properly dealt with? Sometimes that means go be alone and work it out. Process it together, however it, however it works, however you find healing. But many of us are carrying things that we can see, and many of us are carrying things that we cannot see. And it's the things that we cannot see that sometimes are the hardest. The next part of this, I struggled, I actually woke up this morning and wanted to cut it, but the sermon was already written and I didn't think I could do it. So I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna say it, but it is personal and it's a little vulnerable. So I hope that you'll give me some grace. For me, the pandemic in particular has forced me to reckon personal boundaries and structure and much of this tied to coming to terms in a healthy way with my own neurodevelopmental disorder. Some of you know, but most of you don't, that I have ADHD, which is something I say with shame and because of my own issues, not that it is anything shameful at all. Thus, I am not to a degree what people call neurotypical. Chances are several people here have this disorder. It is not uncommon. Mine is not extremely severe, but throughout my life, I have developed a lot of shame around it. I have been told it's not real. I have been told it is, something, it is morally wrong the way that I act when it's things coming out of my disorder. And man, that piles up on you. That really piles up on you. And despite my external processing brain, Marianne will tell you, I will not shut up when I'm at home. I am an introvert. And I believe the reason that I'm such an introvert I know that really why social engagement is so draining and other effects is a lot of this prehistory that I have because of the shame in interaction from childhood to now. So again, this is where it got kind of vulnerable and I wanted to cut all this out. But being what it is, most of this is not visible to you all. I have worked to develop disciplines and behaviors that have helped structure my life. And I think I've managed it fairly well In normal times, I mean, I got a PhD, right? That's something, that's an impressive task with a neurological disorder, a neurological developmental disorder. But with the pandemic, these structures kind of start failing, right? These structures you build for yourself that help you kind of have normalness, they start failing. The pressure that came from increased workload and less time and space to do it made navigating things tough and led to a significant amount of anxiety. I was forced to take my disorder seriously in a way that has been taboo, that I was ashamed of doing since I was a child. Though definitively and clinically diagnosed at seven, my parents did not believe that diagnosis. So I was left untreated. And the symptoms were, from my perspective, dealt with in somewhat damaging and severe ways. I still hold a lot of shame. I keep, shame is coming up a lot. So you take that for what it will, but I hold a lot of that. And talking about it is an exercise for me in normalizing it. So this is an exercise in me, for me in normalizing it. That when we talk and we assume that everyone has neurotypical brains, that's just one thing that is secret. Just so you know, this is my point, right? Is that we all have these hidden things, right? This is one of mine. One of mine, we have lots of them. But when people interact with each other, like we just assume everyone has a neurotypical brain, we may have, there may be consequences we may not realize. So talking about it and normalizing it is an important strategy for me. One thing I know that I do know about ADHD is that it can present itself in many different ways. And so I think a lot of times it's not those who don't have it or know someone with it don't, or aren't teachers. I find teachers are very good these days with ADHD, don't really know what it is that the hallmarks that people are, most people are aware of, attention issues and hyperactivity, are not the disorder, but they're symptoms or behaviors that come from something else. There are many other ways the disorder manifests that can impact one's life that others are unaware of. And as I understand it, it is not simply that the world is not structured for people like me, for atypical people, though, again, that is a broad category Though others process their relationship to ADHD differently, I understand it as a disability and I would very much not like to have it. That is not something that I want. I don't think of it as a superpower. I've heard people say that. That's not me, but this is my brain and it has done some great things and I think it can do more great things. But it's important, at least from my perspective, for people to know that this disorder is not the result of bad parenting or too much TV. It is not a moral failing, nor is it the same thing as simple as people simply feeling restless or forgetting things. It is a developmental disorder with specific physiological manifestations where part of one's brain, the front of one's brain, I won't use technical terms, and we'll get too technical, is not developed in the same way as neurotypical people's brains are developed causing a deficit in important neurotransmitters for functioning. The thing about ADHD is that it is easy for parents, for friends, and for coworkers to dismiss it because it is invisible. Again, my point, because that is invisible. And because it manifests in what seems to be easily categorized, things easily categorized as moral failings. And thus, these are things that need to be punished. So, ADHD children spend their lives being punished for things that are manifestations of a disorder being told that they're wrong. And one can often be shamed. Why can't you act like a normal child? Why won't you pick up your room like a normal child? Remember to lock the door, turn off the lights, do your homework, write that paper on time. Why are you so loud? Did you know that people with ADHD have a problem regulating their volume? That was actually really helpful for me to realize why I have that problem. And one I got a lot. Why are you always losing your mittens? Obviously, that was very personal. This leads to a high rate. I think 25% of people with ADHD have a diagnosable general anxiety disorder. Somewhere around 80%, 60 to 80% have at least another, one other comorbid disorder that comes from, not pro- likely, this, this is debatable, uh, but likely does not come from the disorder itself, but from growing up with the disorder and the social realities of it. Some people don't believe ADHD exists. Others downplay it saying things, uh, sorry for me going on like this, but I couldn't say it without saying everything I wanted to say. And believe me, I did not say everything I wanted to say. So we got a few things in here. Others downplay it saying things like, aren't we all a little ADHD? That was my ADD moment. I don't particularly find that helpful when people say that because I feel like it discounts my own reality. Unless you're actually saying that you have ADHD, then, process it and work it out. There's no shame in it at all. It's good to understand it. But most just can't see it, so the symptoms and behaviors are treated as moral faults. These kids and adults are treated as just bad. That can really be internalized, as I said. That can make sheep wanna go away from the flock. I bring all this up also because you may not know it is Disability Pride Month. And I think I tell this story as an entryway into learning, into understanding everybody else's wonderfulness, all the uniqueness about who we are and how we can understand each other better so we can exist together. I think I tell this story as a, as a learning to process ourselves beyond our externals. Learning to appreciate each other in the varied sorts of life that we have among us and how we might be a better flock. And I think knowing each other in this way, as we can, knowing ourselves processing what we bring to the table as well, is important. And I think it's part of what Paul is talking about in terms of being transformed. I don't think we need to separate those things. God calls us together, elevating all of us in our varied life, binding us together, So I've come on a big arc this morning, but I hope it all ties together for you. If not, I blame my ADHD for all the things. But all of this, and I can say that because I have it. But all of this was just to say in conclusion that I think our new PMC motto should be, Our name is PMC, Church of the King of Kings. Look on our works, ye mighty and despair. No? All right, good. Well, that sounds, actually, it sounds like we approved it. I got a couple laughs, which sounds positive. I'll put that on the church website. Okay, no, that's not the point. But this is the, the last thing I have to say, the last couple sentences here. You are a temple to the living God, inside and out. What we see and what we don't see, we are united together. It's on the traditions that have been passed down to us, that form us, that help us to know and understand ourselves centered on Jesus who shapes us and in whom we find life, renewed and transformed by the power of the Spirit to be at the work of God for the world and with the world. We are a collection of diverse bricks, all having our own things. We are a collection of mottled sheep seeking to find ways together seeking to find healing amid some difficult and hard situations. The process can be difficult and life's pressures are different for each of us, but may God's spirit draw us together in ways that bring healing and wholeness amid our diversity, learning to live in and reflect the mercy, grace, and love of God which is our cornerstone in Jesus. Amen.